This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. McCard carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. You stood next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132, every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. Cade Massey hosting this morning with the Hope Crew. Everybody here on time. Straight away, Audie Weiner just walked through the door. Shane Jensen in his usual green warm-up jacket and Boston Red Sox cap. And Eric Bradlett to my left. Morning, gents. Morning. Hey, good morning. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You guys can join the conversation. Wish you would. Give us a shout. We'd love to hear from you. one 844 Wharton. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or give us an email, com. Maddie Dats will take your email now, over the next two hours, or over the next seven days. If you're listening sometime, we're replayed. It's a great way to reach out in the middle of the week. Or hit us up on Twitter. Our handle on twitter at w moneyball at w moneyball we follow all of our guests we tweet about the world of sports analytics we recirculate stuff we see that's interesting not a bad way to stay on top of that you can also send us questions observations complaints suggestions for over under there are ways to get us to get our attention at w moneyball all right guys we've got a regular show we've got two terrific guests lined up in the bottom of this hour and the top of the next hour but between now and then open lines open topics i'm very curious a lot of things going on what in particular has caught you around the world of sports well what's interesting here is this is one of those obviously usually i'm on the not esoteric but i'm on the side of like you know let's bring up some you know esoteric esoteric <laughs> eighth tier sport but i literally have a list this week probably a longer list of what i would call major central sports for us to talk about than any other week but i think we have to start with the nba right sure i would think I'm, so i yes. mean it's a good place to start so a couple of things um I'm pretty sure there were a large contingent of people. We've talked about the use of analytics in injuries and training for a long time. And obviously the reason we're bringing it up is because of Kevin Durant's injury. Uh, If someone had given me even money, I would have jumped all over a bet before that game that he was going to injure himself. because Well, there would have been a lot of people to take the other side. That he would not injure yeah, himself? Yeah, sure. Obviously, he's, he, a lot of people thought he would, should play. I mean, he's playing. He's not going to think he's going to be injured with probably 50% or more. I mean, and that's why he had been. It seemed like he'd been a little slow coming back. Yeah. It seemed like it. From yeah, it seemed like they were actually kind of being careful with it in, remind, in their own way. Remind but. me what the injury, the initial injury was. Well, the, so this is the debate on what it was, because originally when he went down the first time, this was in the Rocket series. No, the Port. Yeah. It's the no, Rocket series. Rockets. It's the Rocket series. People thought, first of all, it was his Achilles then, because it's the classic running down the court, no one near you, you go over. Then they thought it was his calf, and that's what they diagnosed it. They diagnosed it as a calf strain, and then, of course, they were unclear whether it was calf or it was Achilles, but they finally determined calf injury, so lower leg injury. And, and now it, they're pretty sure it's, it's an Achilles. Well, now they're, <laughs> now they're very sure it's the Achilles. Um, I just thought that... You know, given how long it had taken him to come back, yeah. you were reading reports about he didn't look good in practice, like he wasn't moving well in practice and everything else. And even during that game, 
I mean, forget his ability to shoot. He could shoot in a wheelchair. It wasn't about that. If you actually noticed, he was getting easily beaten off the dribble on shots where he had to jump as opposed to actually just kind of, you know, ball thrown to him, he shoots. He had almost no lift. So I said to my wife in the middle of that first quarter, I have a bad feeling something's going to happen to him in this game. Mm. I just said, I just I just don't like the way he's moving along the court, and I just think he's going to, you know, it's one of those things you can't simulate kind of a big, sudden movement that you do in the well, middle of an important it, it, game. It wasn't even a big, sudden movement. Well, that, but he was trying to, you know, quickly, yeah. short movement, beat a well, guy off the dribble. And if, it, if it is like a torn Achilles, and I realize there's degrees to these things, uh, how long is he, how long is 10 that? 10 to 12 is what they say. Yeah, 10, 10 to 12. 12. Months, wow. 10 to 12 months. So he really... but, no, but let me say the interesting part of it from a let's put on our business hats for a second. Yeah. What's so he going to do? Well, so yeah. there's two options, just so you know. So he owns a player option right. for 2019 20 yeah. in, the, in the amount of $31.5 million. So nobody thought before he was going to take of that. Of course not. When you could get ten million, ten years, and four hundred million dollars, whatever he was going to you get need to, to stay with Golden. Yeah. State. He can stay with Golden State. It's his choice. And of course, they have to pay him, even though he's injured. It doesn't matter. That's the way the NBA agreement works. And actually, matter of fact, I will give some credit at least to the NFL, which has the worst contracts for players. If you're injured, you have to get paid. Yeah. So. That's that's why NFL doesn't play guys that are potentially going to get severe injuries because if they get injured, their money becomes guaranteed. How much of their money? Like no, that, no, that year's money. That yeah, no, no. But if you had like a next year's player option, you couldn't just cut the person. You can't cut a player that's on the injured list in the NFL. Like you, you can't, can't, you can't release you to pay them. You can't. What about release them? I mean, at some points you can. No, no. I'm so saying, you, you got a five year contract. You get injured in the first year. And and you start coming back, then you can get. Cut. Or so once, yeah. they, once they've recovered, once they've what, recovered, but if they're on the injured list at the end of the season, you can't release them. I let's. I'm separating out releasing them versus paying them. You have to pay somebody. You could choose to release a player, but you. Oh, have but to, I, I, I the, meant like in the NFL, they release them, and therefore they don't have to play correct, the correct. Contract, but if you're yeah. injured, you cannot just release and not pay. I see. an injured I see. player. So okay. as, as Cade said, that's the anomaly of the NFL because if you come back enough so that you're not injured in some sense then they can cut you yeah yeah but either way I think Durant's going to pick up that 31.5 million dollar well, it's, oh, it's interesting it. we I had mean, an over under on the number of games that Durant will play for the Warriors and the over under was a half and I took the under and I might win that but not because he moves to another team it's number of games played for the Warriors yeah, yeah, yeah. he might be, be out for the entire season although I think the perspective is that the prospectus is that he'll make it back for the playoffs, yeah. potentially. If the, of course the Warriors are, and in. I mean he would, I mean he would, assuming he picks up the player up, and he yeah. had every motivation to do so to prove he's essentially healthy going into what then would be his well, real free agent season, but, right? But let's play a little, you know, money ball math here. Suppose you're another team, and you say to yourself, "This is a golden opportunity." Yeah, you can sign I, him. I, not only sign him, but. I might be able to sign him for less money than before. Mm-hmm. In other words, where before it would have been, I'm making up a number, seven years, 350 million. Durant is how old? He's 30. Ten years is a long time. No, no, I, I didn't say, yeah. I, I first said 10. Okay. 
no one's going to sign him to a ten-year contract right. at age thirty in the NBA. If you know, but someone could sign him to a six or seven-year contract in the NBA. And now maybe someone's thinking, I can get him for two hundred and forty million, two fifty, mm-hmm. as opposed to three hundred to three fifty. Matter of fact, the market. I mean, let's also say there's not an a zero probability you never come back from a torn Achilles. And you could easily argue you're never going to be the same yeah, player yeah, no, that, that you that, were. That's right. And, I mean, I guess we would have to look um, at the Cousins? history of sort of players that did this t- that that had this kind of injury. Like, how well did they come out? Like, you know, what per- what percent of their former selves were they? Is it like but, the Tommy John? Well, let me, go, let me ask you guys, though. If you were going to build that predictive model... This is great. Here on Wharton Moneyball, by the way, we can create everything into a statistics problem. What other covariates would you put into the model? Because there's been lots of people with Achilles injuries. Would you put in something like, you know, uh, Adi said DeMarcus Cousins. Okay, yeah, but he's a big, lumbering, 280-pound center. He's not, I'll call, an elite runner up and down you'd, the court. You'd where need he- covariates for position slash play style. You know, you'd need covariate, and, and, and I mean, like it, it. It also, I'm sure, you you one covariate would be kind of playing time before the injury. I was just about as, to say, as some how kind much of, wear and tear? How much wear and tear, and also just sort of like a sense for just how important you were, right? Well, I mean, Demarcus Cousins, though he's proving himself to be quite important to the Warriors in this series, is not a player of the importance in on you know a day to day basis that Durant is, right? I mean, he's not an He's not a superstar. Can I ask you, how many Achilles tears are there a season? What's our N in this analysis, this potential analysis we're not going to do? Well, let's start with how many players there are. Well, each team has 12, 15 to, players. 15. Well, 15, but they don't play uh, let's, regularly. Yeah, let's so. call 15 on a roster. So let's say 450 to 500 is mm-hmm. the number of people that play. And if you... Unique players, it's more because people rotate it out. Let's just say 450. Okay. Is it a handful a year? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think it's more than a handful a year. Mm-hmm. I mean, we might have a database of if you went back 50? twenty or thirty years. Yep. No, if you went seventy five. But again, ch- yep. injuries, you know, surgeries have changed. Mm. Yeah, you're not going to have a massive database nope. here for sure. It's not going to be right. So I'm looking at base rates as my calculation, which is my way of saying I'm not going to be happy about adding covariates to such a model. Well, let me, yeah. well, let me ask I mean, you why that's not, a, right? But that's, I mean, that's a know, lovely, that's a lovely yeah. thought, by the way, just a methodological point to underscore. Adi just said, let's do, you know, pretend you don't know anything else and just ask what's the simplest thing you can say based on. Sure. I, you know, yeah. I'm going to throw really... covariates into my model. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> no, but this is a really interesting... <laughs> that's <fine> no, words. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I mean, I think you, you, you seem to be, uh, you know, I mean, it still could be predictive, okay, even it if it's the, not okay. significant. Here's another right? thing we can talk about. Effect size. If it's a big effect size, we'll notice yeah. it. Yeah, so. So I'm, I got this naive opinion that all of these medical problems are solvable these days. You know, We grew up in the era where, hell, if our friends blew out their knee playing football in high school, they were done. No, but, now, now, kids, people have major knee reconstruction in college, and they come back 100%. So let, me, so let me be clear on this, though. I know this is different than knees. No, no, no. no. I'm not even saying that. I'm saying... What we're talking about here to warrant the size of a contract, what you'd really like to run here is some form of almost like quantile regression, which is I'm not interested in whether the average NBA player or even the very good NBA player yeah. can come back from an ACL injury. I want to know, can a person in the far right tail of the distribution, of which we don't have we maybe don't any have other data. No, no. data. I said if I could have my dream. That's why I think this problem is different. We're asking, can Durant come back as one of the top three players? 
players in the NBA when he returns, which I'm not sure if DeMarcus Cousins... Yeah, if he was to take an average NBA salary, I think every team in the league would everybody take a bet would on take that. Everybody would take But he's, he, he, he's still going to be looking for one of these like 50 million elite a year. 10, Some, top 10 in the league, people. like max contract. Well, that's what, 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 there's two different questions. What's he going to do, and then what will people um, be willing to take a bet on? And they're going to be willing to bet on it. They're going to be willing to bet on it. I think him. there's probably going to be at least one team But I think that's why I think Adi's point about not just sample size, but in this case, you could argue the right reference population. Matter of fact, you could argue there's zero. Maybe Kobe Bryant, although the only difference was Kobe was 35, 36 when it happened. So then, you know, he was near the end of his career when this happened. And I think most people would argue if you hadn't had this injury, Durant is in the middle of his career, mm-hmm. not at the end of his career. One other um, uh, important, I think piece of information is that in the in the NBA there's a salary cap it's it's raised it's higher than it was but if there were truly a free market just hypothetically and let's say Durant was it's not a soft injured cap. it's a soft so how much would Durant get if there were if the teams could spend as much as they wanted would he be? Re- I mean, it's a great LeBron, question. LeBron used to say we used to say he was worth eighty, ninety, hundred million dollars. Well, let's yeah. be let's be yeah. clear what there is in yeah. the NBA just for our listeners here. You can't play a player any amount you want. That's you right. Cannot. You but cannot. If Players are on your roster. Like, for example, there's been discussions if they had re because it has to do with re signed players. If they re signed Clay Thompson, who's due a contract, and Durant, there was, if you actually look at the salaries, their salary and penalties for being over the soft cap, maybe 350 to $400 million next year. So that suggests the value is quite high. Is extraordinarily yeah. high. Yeah. So, so for example, Adi, who, if someone were to sign him right now, if he were to go in the free agent market and someone has to basically eat next year's thirty-one million dollar player option, there would be no shortage of people getting in line yep. to do that. Because on, of the on gap. top of his yeah. no, let's be clear though, if he exercises the option, though, the Warriors own his I'm rights sorry, and they have to trade I, him. I, I but yes, that, I got that wrong. So, say max contract for a year, they would eat that thirty-seven or thirty-eight happily. To get a few more years at thirty-seven or thirty-eight, yeah. happily. So yes. that's, that gives you. Yeah, I mean, I would put him at like fifty or sixty or something like. Let's that. talk about the series. So we're going into Game Six. We're going back to Golden State. Um, the the Warriors are going to be favored now, even with Durant Plus out two. there. They're they're or favored by two. a little bit. Yeah. The of course the Raptors were favored in in, in Game Five, a potentially series clinching Game Five. What do you think is going to happen now? That, that, and and what do you think about the game? Uh, setting aside Durant's injury, which was a you know you guys have bummed me out even more because it, you know I think best bet is he's not going to make it back to quite the same level. But let's set that aside now and talk about the series or I, the game. I mean, it's a ridiculous. I game. think the, yeah. I think you know. It's one of those situations where it took a sequence of events for Golden State to win that game, which includes, you know, three threes in the last two minutes by two of the best shooters in the history of the NBA. It took all kinds of mistakes on Toronto's part in the last couple minutes of the game. I think, I don't know why they went away from Kawhi Leonard shooting pretty much every shot since he had just made every shot. Um, but I think at the end of the day, I think I would still bet I, the Raptors are the better team yeah. without Durant. The Raptors are the better team. They've been the better team. They've looked more the, dominant in the game. I mean, you know, I mean, the Golden State sneaked a couple out of the uh, out of the series, but the Raptors have looked far more dominant. Look, it's not crazy if one looks at it in my whatever objectively, whatever that means. You could easily imagine a scenario where the Raptors could have won this series four zero. Because mm-hmm. I agree with you. I think this Golden State has snuck out two wins in this series. Yeah. Do you believe, as I, I think, that the Sixers are the second best team? Because they really played Toronto yeah, right to the wire. Yeah, they took Toronto to seven games. 
Seven? No. <laughs> or not. <laughs> nice, nice claim. I mean, I have a lot of friends in, in Philadelphia that are, that, are, uh, that are claiming that right now. That's right, so what's the, the problem with that argument? That's the local Eric, spin. Maybe. The answer is maybe. I think it's just, you know, there's transitivity. There's, there's not transitivity in, yeah, course, in basketball. Yeah. And so Toronto has lots of players that can, in, in some sense, dent what Golden State is trying to do. And I don't think the Sixers match up. At the end of the day, it's very simple. The Sixers don't have enough shooting. Which means we saw this the whole season. If if for whatever reason JJ Redick doesn't drop in thirty, the Sixers become a team that score between ninety and a hundred points, and that's not going to be enough to defeat the Golden State Warriors. They don't have enough shooters. But you see, I mean, Toronto has guys. They're not necessarily all making them, but you know they have Danny Green. They've got Lowry. They've got Leonard. They've got even uh, Gasol. They've got shooters all of Siakam. They got shooters all over the court. The yeah, Sixers so- have Ben Simmons who can't shoot the ball. Right? <laughs> I mean, half the you know a bunch of guys on the Sixers can play, but they can't shoot. Yeah. And Toronto, so why, Toronto plays Golden State basketball as well. I mean, they do. Yeah. They love wide, right. making it wide open. Matter of fact, I never saw thought I would see the day where. Golden State wants to slow it down, and Toronto's pushing yeah. the pace yeah. of the action. Yeah, yeah. Toronto wants that more wide open style and pace. So, have y'all have y'all have y'all been had by Toronto yet? Or are you still kind of? We all loved Golden State when they first came it's out. Pushed, no, it's pushed me to basically coin flip. Well, you're Canadian. You shouldn't be on a coin flip here. What the heck? Is well, it, is it because oh, you're you Western think Canadian? I mean, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't, I don't have any allegiance to Toronto. My, yeah. my part of Canada grew <laughs> up hating Toronto. Yeah, you just got to get okay. Daniel Bruno, our associate producer, to put it back. Remember my prediction at the beginning when we had the over under five and a half. It's the only prediction I've gotten right, Kate. So I'm going to talk about this one <laughs> oh, single no, you one. Got, you I got, got Nadal. I got you, Nadal you right too. One. I got on. Nadal right too. But I said that it would go over five and a half games. But my prediction was because of the possibility that Toronto could win the series. Yeah. And so that's I you know I don't want to say that's going to come to fruition, but yeah. well over five it, it and a half yeah. that's correct. We're, we're there. That we're already I, there. I will, I will throw out that that uh, I remarked pretty strongly that this was the biggest one of the biggest three biggest divergences between the statistical model and the Vegas. And I need odds. to apologize right. to Adi because he asked me to well. If betting were legal, you asked me to contact some people, and I did not do that. Right. Well, maybe you did, and you just didn't tell me. <laughs> Wharton Moneyball here, full crew, Adi, Shane, Eric, and Cade. You can reach us, especially on Twitter, at WMoneyball, at WMoneyball. Okay, fellas, other than the NBA, we got a Game 7 in the oh NHL. Oh, my goodness, so exciting, yeah. So, I mean, is, it, is there a Boston team in this? Is that what's happening? Or is there a Canadian team? No, it's not a Canadian team. But I'm actually cheering for the Blues. I'm, he, I'm he cheering against the Bruins. He considers the Blues a Western team. And so oh, is it because they're like Northern or something? No, or it's, what's it's, the, it's because they've never won it. And they haven't even been in it for like 30 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, anybody who's a casual fan of hockey should be pulling for the St. Louis Blues on this one. <laughs> All, All right. right. Well, I was well, I mean, Other than the fact that also that Boston's won everything, et cetera, et cetera. But like, no, I mean, the Blues are a very there, kind of exciting, compelling team. Is there information? It seems like the Blues win by one goal and the Bruins win by yeah, four. Yeah, no. Well, right. I mean, it's almost there's almost an analogy to the NBA Finals. I mean, I do think the Bruins, yeah, the Bruins, the Blues have been squeaking out victories. The Bruins have been dominating in some of these games. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of the variance is just sort of how well the St. Louis Blues goaltender Bangton is playing. He seems to be kind of high variance in that way. Okay. Is he um, the one who got pulled a few games ago? Yes. And they put him back in. Yeah, but he's been great. In the games when he's good, he's good. <laughs> yeah, that's thing, but, but this is this is your yeah. this is one of uh, Cade's. He only uh, has to be good for one more this game. This is one of your things. Seventh game 
hockey yeah, yeah. is you, you want your, your 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 phone to alert you. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, such a phenomenon. Seventh game, yes, but I mean playoff overtime hockey. Yeah, is oh, the one you need. You need yeah. your not text alert. Playoff, for, the finals. I know. No, no, I know. I get it, but we're not in overtime yet. So, but my main thing is like I want an app that's going to alert me anytime a playoff hockey game goes to overtime because that's always going to be worthwhile. But game seven. Yeah, we can always. We, we certainly should cheer. I mean, especially as, as as Blues fans, we should cheer for a close game. But let's talk about why that might be. So it feels to me that you can see a difference in effort level more in hockey than any of the other three sports, other four sports. So yeah. whenever the whenever the moment arrives, whether it's overtime in playoffs or game seven, you can perceive the difference on the ice. Like the, like the energy changes, I think it's harder, the speed changes. I, I think it happens in basketball, too. Like the last two minutes of the game, there's definitely a difference in intensity. Yeah. It's just it's a, interrupted like every three seconds with a timeout, so it's right. kind of hard to kind of get a sense of that, whereas hockey right. still has the same kind of pace of play. Maybe it's a little bit faster. Maybe there's even slightly fewer whistles because they're less likely to call penalties, etc. Mm-hmm. So I think that extra that in, extra intensity or pace of play is more kind of self-evident well, in a hockey game. Th- I think it happens in basketball. It's just there's, you know, 40 stoppages, so you don't really kind of detect the only it. Time, the only thing I can put even close to that excitement is, like, when the World Cup is going on, and you're in the knockout round, and these games go to overtime, I mean, the amount of tension... And yeah. that is just but again, unbelievable. Still, but yeah. a part of it, but it's tension in the fans, right? You can't actually tell. We're talking about a perceived, like an actual obvious yeah. player. Yeah. 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 Let me ask, yeah. let me ask yeah. Cade, since you are our behavioral scientist here, as well as statistician type, um, do people in Game Seven? Do you expect an ext- a higher level of risk aversion? Like, I don't want to be the player that makes the mistake, that costs us the goal, that costs us the championship. Because I do see that in soccer quite a bit. You see teams, many teams, play more conservatively in Game 7. And you see players, you know, in some sense, like when you see... What it, is Game 7 in soccer? No, no, like in an overtime, I'm saying. In an overtime World Cup. Like an Cup, extra period? Or yeah, like mm-hmm. extra time or, you know, an extra period for going on in the World Cup... Someone's like, wow, I'm not going to make the mistake that cost my nation you know, this I think, game. I think you might be able to study that explicitly with penalty kicks. Yeah. And I think people, we have seen that it, it's it's good to go second because if you go first, you don't perform. I could have exactly wrong. But people have studied this. and There are effects in penalty kicks that might be related to exactly what you're talking about. I don't, I don't have an intuition for that. I don't think we have any science that would model directly onto if both teams are. I mean, if it's an overtime, then by definition, they're even. And the change in risk-taking because of the circumstance, I don't think we have anything on there. Maybe you would see something between favorites and underdogs. So if you get into if a home ice with the Bruins are supposed mm-hmm. to win, um, maybe in that case you would expect a little more risk aversion from the team that was the, 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 the favorite. Can I get some clarification on hockey? What, do you, what is the intensity level that kind of uh, range? So there must be an enormous difference between going full out and then just your average play time. I think that might be the answer. Yeah. I mean, there's the huge variance because I think I think I think, I mean, I think skating is, is really tired. But, but you know, and, and there is a large. I mean, you can kind of see it at the end of game. You know, the, like last ten minutes of even the third period when it's a close game, you can kind of see right. the the pace of play. Uh, I mean, I don't, I, I, mean, I don't know if I, I could give you a relative, like a, a multiplicative factor. I think it's at least one point two five over the but rest of the game. But this is the thing. This is this is. I've been asking for this for yeah. years. Actually, we have the data. Someone knows. Someone has observed the speed and the exertion 
of the players. We do objectively now. Yep. I mean, I think, I, I think within the last two years, we've started know, collecting well, that data. I, mean, know, I, 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 I mean, that's private data? Or has anyone yeah, written it's about private, it? Or? Private. I mean, it's interesting because we're starting to see a lot of the tracking data in pieces kind of come out. Yeah. I mean, NFL uh, Next Generation Stats has an article talking about the, 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 the impact data that they're collecting and, and who's you know, which offensive linemen are doing the job right and which ones yeah, yeah. are getting through. Yeah, and this yeah. is, you couldn't imagine doing this, Do you, this before. So, Shane, do we expect, should we expect to see shorter line times on the ice because guys that would are follow, pro- yeah. Yeah, yeah, that would follow yeah. that, you know, I can't go 25 seconds in a stint because, and by the way, most people have and this that's impression, by the way. that's calculatable with the old data, right? It's right. just like shift, like number of shift, amount of time right. on the ice. People have this yeah. impression, by the way, and you guys probably know the data, but how much time a shift spends on the ice. Most people, oh, it's like two minutes. Two minutes. These guys would be dead in two minutes. Yeah. It's much less than that. And so I'm expecting a game it, with it, a lot very of shifting. Because if you get trapped in your own zone or something like that, it can definitely get out to two minutes. So, I mean, it depends also. The great thing about it is it depends also on the gameplay and the game style. But, no, I especially if it does go to overtime, you'll see very short shifts because those guys are going to get really gassed. And I kind of hope it does go to overtime just so we can kind of see that. So a couple of a couple of. Trackman observations, Trackman, motion tracking, tracking tracking observations from sports back to Kawhi Leonard and the Raptors with the NBA. Did you see this article where they talked about Kawhi Leonard as an offensive rebounding force? Yes. Which is fine. People would say that kind of thing. They might have said that kind of thing for decades now. But then they come in with tracking data and note how often he arrives and and gets a rebound from 15 feet or more away. Right, the amount of feet he travels to get it. And it's it's absurd how it's a relatively rare rare thing that happens, and then he has a disproportionate number of them. And it's not – these are all relatively small sample, but the difference between him and the other players is remarkable. Like, he he just seems to have – he just seems to have an unusual ability, as we can now see because of motion tracking data. Yeah, I actually I loved that article. That was number one. Number two, I think one of the big differences actually in this series, which is why I think Toronto will win this series, is the offensive rebounding potential of him. I feel Gasol like that's how they killed. I other feel words, like that's how they killed the Sixers too. It is. Like, I, I don't think the Sixers got offensive rebound that entire. Ironically, series. despite you know the minute Embiid is out of the game, this yeah. we saw for the Sixers. The Sixers are an awful rebounding team mm-hmm. without Embiid in the game, which is why the plus-minus with Embiid... Simmons doesn't it, do that decently well? Not, what is wrong with him? Well, he's a guard. He's, he's huge. So, I know, he's but not, he's covering. But who's he covering? Be the one he's not going to be the one but, underneath the basket because right. yeah. the guy he's covering is out at the top of the key. And so the Sixers clearly need... And that's what you're seeing in Toronto. They're absolutely brutalizing the Warriors on offensive rebounding. Right. And that's a way, by the way, you slow down another team's offense. Also, when you're a three-point heavy shooting team, it's key to get a percentage of those th- those missed threes back to try again. See, it's, it's, it's interesting. They must Teams must be doing this now, but you could look at the position of all the players on the court at the time of a shot yep. and then calculate expected rebounds for every mm-hmm. position. You could. And then you get a very fine measure of guys' performance or uh, above or under expectations. And presumably, Leonard's coming in real high. Listen, before we get all the way to the bottom of the, of the hour, I know that Eric has to have something to say about the French Open. That's the third big one. Yeah, we got to give him for credit for, week, I, I think, being the only one of us to predict I, it. Nadal I, I, I would, think I was under. Did you go yeah. under on the Kate, 2.5? Kate, yeah, Cade did pick under on that one uh, as I well. I did not. I'm, I'm, I watched. Look, <laughs> I, I, I have a totally different perspective on the following sense. First of all, there's no doubt in my mind, not no doubt, injury could stop it. Nadal will end up with the most majors because I don't see anyone close to him at the French. Just to be clear for our listeners, right, Federer has 20, Nadal now has 18, 
Djokovic has 15. And, uh, you know, I, I admit Djokovic might get to 20 or 21. He may win another five or six majors. That's true. But I don't see why Nadal won't win the French. Cause, Four know, or if five more times. He, so right. If Djokovic. all he plays is the French. Let's imagine the only thing he does is gear up for the clay court season. I don't yeah. mean just the French. He plays Rome and Madrid and Barcelona. He just gears up for the clay court season. The gap between him... And every other player. I mean, it's just that if Djokovic is going to be the one that dominates the other three for here, three for is the greater next than five one. Years, I get that. You know, I mean, there's a chance that he could pass in kind of totals, but he would really have to dominate those other three. How given many, that, like Nadal's just, essentially a lock. Well, on just the quickly, how many majors would you have to believe uh, Djokovic is going to get to? For that you to be confident that Nadal won't pass him. Like if I told you Djokovic oh, I, I gets to twenty one, Nadal winning the next five like French. All right, well, that gets him to twenty three. You think yeah. Djokovic is going to win nine more majors? I mean, he's he's basically no, he's younger than Nadal, right? One year younger. One year no, younger than Nadal. He's thirty two. He's about to turn thirty two. I, um, I can't believe it. He's going to win nine more. It. No I way. I can't believe it. No. Sure. I don't. I mean, I mean, I'm not saying it's the other thing. Let me give you a few quick numbers. He would need to. Nadal is 93 and two at Roland Garros. Yeah, right. 93 and two. Uh, But the the big three we've been talking about: Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal. They're on a Grand Slam winning streak of ten tournaments. So yeah, that's that's. I mean, it just kind of puts. So all you around. need for me to be correct, and I'm not saying I'm going to be correct, but and, it and is Federer fading out, and it's Djokovic and Nadal, and Djokovic I, has to dominate. Oh, I think I think right now I'd be interested in the betting odds. I would say Federer has the least chance of those three of actually right now being nice, the, nice, the, nice the final yeah. major winner. Can we toss the most, one out? The most number of majors. Are there no young twenty somethings? Coming along where, in tennis, where are they? Who's the next? I mean, where's, this is well, the real obstacle to winning. One. Is these no, guys no. are in their mid thirties? We, we, we saw one. We saw one. He's played Djokovic. Uh, sorry, Nadal now twice in the finals. Dominic Thiem mm-hmm. has made it to the French Open final twice in a row now. So you know he picked it, the wrong surface to be competitive in. That's <laughs> that's absolutely right. And Does he have a surface? No, preference? that's his surface. That's his surface. By that's far. Oh, by far. Oh, yeah, no, no, yeah, no, yeah. no, by far. He can't yeah. beat Djokovic anywhere else. He can, it wouldn't even be close. Um, so, you know, you could say Alexander Zverev, one of the big server guys, you know, maybe on, on grass or the U.S. Open. But the, here's the problem. It's another, I, I see at least another, I wouldn't be surprised if that streak reaches... 18 to 20. Oh, my gosh. Jeez, a <laughs> couple more years. A couple more well, years. You don't, think, you don't think the I, delta between Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic I mean, and the you, rest you of would the be field? The one to, I, I just don't Since know things possibly. as well as what's you. He, I mean, he, you know. No, but, 24, no, 25-year-old. <laughs> there certainly have nothing to No, there is, but here's the problem. go against you on this now, one. Now, here's the problem. Just quickly, to win a major... You may have to beat all three of them, and you're certainly going to have to beat two of them. And apparently, no one has ever done that. No one. That's why I thought Theme would lose. Also, no one has ever beaten Djokovic and Nadal in the same tournament. No one. So, uh, let's just one last note on Nadal: twelve championships at Roland Garros at the French Open. Twelve. That's the most by any player, and male or female. The next is Margaret Court, who won eleven Australian Opens. Going into Wimbledon. Djokovic is is the 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 favorite at plus one thirty. Federer plus four hundred and Nadal on a very different service plus six fifty. Next one Zverev plus twelve hundred. All right, guys, hit us up on Twitter at wmoneyball is our handle on Twitter at wmoneyball. We have a guest in the next half hour. We're delighted. We've been looking forward to this for months. John Urschel is joining us. If you don't know John, you will soon. He is the author of a new book 
The book is called Mind and Matter, A Life in Math and Football. Not just any life, football at the NFL level, starting lineman for the Ravens for years after a career at Penn State. And on the math front, well, he's doing a Ph.D. at MIT, so he can do some math. <laughs> the guy can do some math. John, good morning to you. Good morning. How are you? We're, we're good. We're good. Delighted to have you. Thanks for taking the time. Where are you calling in from this morning? Uh, Boston. Uh, Cambridge, right, uh, right by MIT. All right. So um, it's summertime. I know Eric's, Eric's, Eric's kid just finished his high school year, um, and, and the kids around here are, are kind of rolling out of their school. What happens when you're doing a math PhD at MIT and it's June? What's going on at Cambridge right now for you, John? Yeah, so, uh, so school is out, so most of the undergrads are gone. And, uh, you know, kicking around, doing some research, reading some papers. Kicking around. You, <laughs> All right, just a typical MIT math. Are, are you uh, saddled with a research assistantship or a TA ship, or you're just uh, that's that's something you don't have to do at MIT? Uh, so you do have a like a sort of like a TA ship, so you'll run some recitations. But uh, I was on fellowship this past semester, so uh, I was just fully research. Got it. Got it. Well, this is a good a good way to get the research going. Remind us where you are. In your PhD career, how long do you expect this program to be, and how far into it are you? Yes, so I uh, I'm almost done, and I uh, I plan on graduating next spring. Okay, so this fall I'll be applying to uh, you know postdoc positions, and uh, you know just looking forward to continuing my education, continuing to sort of like grow as a mathematician. So do you have, we can, we want to talk more about football, of course, but let's just stay on this path for a little bit. Do no, 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 you no, listen, I'm trust me, I'm fine with this path. All right. <laughs> <laughs> You've demonstrated as much. Um, is, are you interested in academic life or when you, are you interested in faculty positions long-term? I'm fully interested in academic life and uh, faculty positions. I think it's actually, it's, it's really one of the best, gigs if you can get it like uh, i know there's you know there's always these reports and often they list like mathematician as like one of the happiest careers and like i really believe it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as a math professor it's a pretty nice life i mean okay the one caveat i have to give is that the sort of the market isn't the best right that there's not that many positions there's a lot of people who want them but if you can get a position right your life pretty much consists of like, uh, okay, let's say you're at MIT, you teach one class a semester, you do research with PhD students, and you just think, and you're mm-hmm. sort of your own boss, you're in charge of what research you do, mm-hmm. you're in charge of your hours in many ways, it's just a, uh, it's a very beautiful, it's just a great profession, and it's, uh, it's just, yeah, I mean, for me to be in charge of, you know, what I think about every day. Got it. Oh, really you're you're talking to professors, John. <laughs> yes. uh, you know, this is this is the lifestyle that I was exposed to growing up. My father was a mathematician, and so I saw that, and I said, "That's the one lifestyle I wanted as well." So, John, this is Eric Bradlow. Could you tell us um, what area of mathematics you're studying? I mean, again, just uh, in a non-technical way for both us and our listeners here, what what are you studying, and what what kind of problems are exciting to you? Yes. So, uh, broad strokes. I, uh, when I started, I was in mathematical physics. Well, I mean, when I started sort of doing mathematical research, but since I started researching as an undergrad, I've sort of shifted. And these days, I very much work in theoretical computer science. 
So I'm concerned with uh, questions of computing. I'm concerned with uh, some classical problems in machine learning. And I'm also very interested in things involving sort of like network analysis. Well, if you're into machine learning, that market opens up quite a bit, I have to say. Yeah, it's true. I, uh, I have to say that one thing that I think is actually really nice is that I've been really encouraged to see that being a smart person with a strong mathematical background gives you amazing job prospects, even if your area of research is, let's say, something completely pure, like, let's say, number theory. Mm-hmm. Or I could go even purer than number theory. I mean, people, you could try to come up with, like, maybe you're doing stuff in cryptography, but, like, as pure as you want, and you can still have job prospects in industry. Right. And, uh, and quite good ones. And right. this is something that uh, I didn't know about until, well, my friends at MIT, MIT Math, start graduating. And not all of them want to go into academia because, okay, for some of them, maybe their PhD program didn't turn out how they would have liked. Perhaps they found that they don't love research as much as they thought, or for any number of reasons. Perhaps they just want to make a lot of money. And uh, it's been really amazing to see that uh, that these people actually do get very good jobs, and they do like command quite quite good salaries and mm-hmm, it's, it's mm-hmm, encouraging to see. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Although so, I won't be one of those people. <laughs> so John, one of the um kind of one of the things I basically struggled with, you know, I I you can't usually compare my career to most of the people we talk to on the show, but like one of the things I, I struggle with struggled with when I started my PhD and was going into the academic path is kind of transitioning from the very highly structured kind of undergraduate life to a less you know the to the the great Part of our gig, which is time flexibility, but also the kind of need to self-motivate for all, all the things that we're doing. And I would assume that that transition was even more stark from you coming from an NFL career, which must have been very highly structured on your time. Oh, so can you kind of interesting question. Yeah. Can you kind of talk about how it go, how going from something where your day was presumably very, very structured for you to something like a PhD? Let me put another angle on that question, an additional angle. To what extent is the kind of self-motivation required to make it through a Ph.D. program actually important, kind of unexpectedly important in the life of an NFL athlete? Okay, so I got a lot of questions there. Um, Let's see. First off, I would say that uh, not a hard transition at all, in fact. I I have to say that uh, I'm generally someone who doesn't like being told what to do. I like setting oh my, my own schedule. I like setting my own structure. And so in many ways, sort of the structure of the NFL and the structure of football of sort of always being told where to be and right. what to do at the exact time, right. this was something that I dealt with. And the sort of uh, the self-motivation and the create-your-own-schedule of being a mathematician, this is what I love. I mean, this is what mm-hmm. I enjoy. I'm very bad at I don't like being told. <laughs> I really like being my own boss. Did your so, offensive line coach know that about you? Everyone knows this about me. <laughs> yeah. Every, I can assure you, every, everyone who knows me knows this about me. All right. So, All John, right. I, I think I inherited it from my father. I do not like being told what to do. So, John, let me ask you a related question. Um, again, we're trying to tie your academic career um, to the NFL as well here. Um, mm-hmm. Does being 
let's assume, you know, you can be modest about this if you'd like. Let's assume, given you're getting a PhD in math from MIT, if you look at your location, the distribution, you're in the right tail of the distribution of not just the human population, but also the NFL. Does that level of intelligence help someone perform in the NFL? Or is it more of a threshold model where as long as you're intelligent enough and you can learn the playbook, you can learn from opponents. Does, in other words, does being three sigma out plus on the distribution help you more than just being intelligent enough? Yeah, I, I understand the question, and I, I really do think it's closer to a threshold. Okay. It's not quite a threshold, but I think it's, it's much closer to that. I mean, the additional benefits, okay, it varies by position. Yeah, right. And in some positions, I think there's almost no benefit. But in other positions, there's definitely benefit. Uh, you know, being an interior offensive lineman, there's definitely benefit. If you're a quarterback, of course, there's benefit. In other positions, I think there's much less benefit. So, but real quick, I was just having this conversation with an analyst the other day. Is it is it the case that that intelligence is more highly rewarded in the interior of the offensive line than in the tackle position? And it, it so we were we were kind of speculating that physical gifts alone probably mattered more on the outside. Yeah, yeah, that's certainly true. Okay, wow. It's, Certainly, certainly true. I mean, yes, you could be short some physical gifts on the interior, but if you're smart, you have good technique, people will be very happy with you. As a, uh, you know, if you're, you know, a tackle, people really need to see certain measurables, sort of like physical characteristics. Otherwise, it's just a non-starter. Got it. John, let's take this one level deeper because this is the kind of thing that gets said all the time, but then maybe none of us know what it actually translates into. Like, in what way is a smart offensive lineman better than a less smart offensive lineman? Or in what way is intelligence important, especially, say, in the interior of the offensive line? Some practical, concrete way it makes a difference. Yes. So... Uh, okay, a very casual football fan might not know that the offensive linemen, they don't just hit people. They actually have to make decisions pre- and post-snap. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, suppose the coach calls a certain play. Suppose it's a pass play. In some offenses, the quarterback will sort of really run things and tell offensive linemen what to do, and others, it's on the center to decide how to block a certain pass protection. And so the center is responsible to sort of look at the defense and be able to tell where is pressure most likely going to come from Mm -hmm. or what protection gives us the best opportunity given what the center sees. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As, let's say, a guard, you know, it could be a run play, and even though the play has been called and the play is fully decided, you have to look at the defense and decide locally what is the best blocking scheme. Mm Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. gives you the best chance of success. And this, you know, as a guard, you might not even talk to the center about this. This might be between you and the tackle. Right, right. And you need to make a decision that affects the whole sort of play, but it's really a decision that you and the tackle decide. Right, right. So if you played with guys over the years in Penn State or Baltimore, where is, do you kind of know whether you're playing with a guy who has a good sense of those things and makes good decisions, or you get frustrated by guys who don't have a good sense of those things and make bad decisions? Because coordination is so important. Everything you're doing, especially in the interior, is in tandem with somebody else next to you. Oh, absolutely. You, uh, yeah. I mean, so often when you, because often you'll see like a play and you know, it looks like someone just did something completely stupid. And it's not always clear who messed up. Right. 
because like offensive lineman play is so sort of like intertwined. So you might see, okay, a guard get beat on a certain play, but you don't know if he was supposed to have help from the tackle. If, right. You know, if these two people thought there were two different blocking schemes, if they didn't communicate correctly. And yeah, you play with people and you get a feel for, uh, you know, whether they have sort of good instincts in this respect or whether they're not so good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, oftentimes, you know, a a player who sort of knows these things well, who really can make good decisions, can really compensate for, let's say, a player next to him who might be an extreme physical athlete but might not be so good at these mm-hmm, types of things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's often good to put these two players together. If you have to decide how right. to uh, set up your line, it often helps because if you, you, know, if you don't, then somehow you know one side of your line might have serious issues. Got it, got it. We're talking to John Urschel. John is a former offensive lineman with the Baltimore Ravens and before that the Penn State Nittany Lions. I believe he came out of Penn State in 2013 or so. By the way, John was the country's top scholar athlete in college football in his years at Penn State. Whatever that means. Someone someone decided. Someone decided. He is now a PhD candidate in the math program at MIT and the author of a new book. I believe it's just out. We're just now getting our copy, Mind and Matter, A Life in Math and Football. Just quickly, John, it mentions here on the Wikipedia, on your own Wikipedia page, I don't know how much you put on there, but it mentions here (laughs) that, (laughs) that one of the reasons you left the NFL has to do with CTE. Um, it just I'm just telling you what it mentions. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I thought that the story, at least I read, was that you, I think, uh, quit the NFL something like one or two days after that big CTE study came out. Yeah, so could you talk about that and just what role it played in your decision-making? Hold on, but first I have to, like, I have to make a comment about the sort of, you actually, you... You heard this from my Wikipedia page. Well, I read it. I read it on your Wikipedia page. About 30 yeah, seconds ago. my Wikipedia page, but you heard it from my Wikipedia uh, page. Uh, he's calling you out. <laughs> That's true. Don't mess with Urshel, man. Yeah, here's, here, yeah, here, here's a really nice text-to-voice app that he listens to Wikipedia on. Gotcha, gotcha. I understand. Yeah, so uh, I did retire after my third season. It, uh, it was a couple days after uh, sort of a uh, report about CTE came out. Uh, obviously, you know, when something like that comes out, that's something you should take into consideration when you're deciding whether or not you want to play another season. It certainly didn't make the decision for me, and a lot of things went into that decision. How did the Ravens take it? And I mean, how did your teammates take it? What was that like to make it? I remember it was shocking to me and, you know, disappointing as a fan of the Ravens that would lose a starting offensive lineman like that. How, how was it received inside the building? Uh, I got a lot of well wishes from a lot of players. Uh, uh, Harbaugh, he, he even called me a couple times, sort of like after I retired to check up on me, see how the PhD at MIT is going, things like that. So, no. That's great. That's quite, quite, yeah. quite, quite good. John, I, I want to uh, bring us back to the conversation we had just a second ago about the, the, the inability or from the outside for us to judge, like, who's responsible for a missed play. 
so is it is are the experts who are now watching these plays carefully? I know Pro Football Focus is trying to grade everything that happens on on the on the field while it's happening. Are they actually able to do that, or is there or is there something that you you guys on the field actually know and no one else really is seeing? And let's ask you that in a more sophisticated version than we usually ask, because you know we are statisticians, and so we're going to say yeah, yeah, they can't get it right all the time, but they're going to look at enough plays that uh, we can say something general about the tendency. So so we're going to recognize, as you would, that of course it's not perfect, yeah, but, but can they see it well enough? They're to, grading the plays. Yeah, I mean, are can, they accurate? Hmm. So <laughs> the type of sort of blown plays that we're discussing that are sort of where it's hard to sort of determine blame, I think this happens rarely, but even though it happens rarely, these are the type of plays that lead to an extremely negative valuation. Yeah. Often. Yeah. So it's while I can say that perhaps the amount of times that uh, you have something like this happen and an outlet such as Pro Football Focus is unable to determine who's at fault, while this might happen very rarely, I think, I think the fact that because something like this happens and you know, someone is tackled for a loss or someone gets sacked, this is a very, very negative play. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not sure that uh, it's insignificant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So John- I don't know how they deal with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so John, this is Eric Bradlow again. I wanted to ask you a question. Um, when Adi and I were a little uh, older than Shane, as an example, when we graduated with our statistics PhDs, the kiss of death for one's academic career was working on what we talk about here on our show every day. If you became a sports statistician, you were not a serious person because you were studying toy problems. Do you ever see the day where, just because you obviously have to be a fan of sports at some level, I would assume, do you ever see yourself working on mathematical problems in sports, and is that something that would become part of your career? I could. I don't see it being very likely. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I just, there's so many interesting areas of mathematics, there's so many just fields that are fascinating to me, you know, subjects in numerical analysis, subjects in graph theory, in machine learning, and there's so many different areas of math. I mean, it's just, like, sports analytics just really is not that high on my list. I mean, <laughs> I understand how to some people it's very interesting because they have a great interest in sports and they have a great interest in sort of quantitative things, and I do have a great interest in both those things, but in my opinion, just my personal ranking of, like, how interesting a subject is, I think there's a lot of areas of math that are much higher on my list in sports mm-hmm. analytics, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. though I think sports analytics is interesting. But you have to remember, you're, you're, you're doing math, mathematics, and this is, sports analytics really for the data analysts. You know, we're really inspired deeply by looking at the numbers, looking at the data, and, and taking it for someone who's made a shift from pure mathematics to data. It's a, it's a different, a very different orientation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I suppose... I mean, uh, I don't know. I, I generally think of like uh, data analysis and you know constructing models, and especially coming up with sort of uh, models to make proper decisions in sports analytics. This, uh, this, while it is sort of a practical thing, it's a practical application of often some uh, some nice mathematics. And I think that, in my opinion, like if sports analytics, and okay, I'll speak specifically about football analytics, so I've been talking about something I know, 
I think that uh, if it really grows and becomes sophisticated in the way I think it should, you will see a lot more sort of higher level mathematical techniques being used. Interesting. What's an example of a technique you think is on the way? Uh, for instance, so suppose coaches and teams have access to, let's say, computers during the course of a game, help in sort of predicting tendencies of opponents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So th- this is something that... And this ne- is like a simple, like, this is sim- a simple, like, online learning problem. Right. Say. Right, right. So yeah. you're, you're you're saying something that's that's quick enough in its learning that it can process game, like in-game analysis, and update that quickly. Which yeah, would... in-game analysis within like less than less than a second. Mm-hmm. John, listen, which we're down. Of course, modern computers are capable of, but you have to have them like in the booth. Right, right, right. Well, you know, with motion tracking data, people are having to go to much more sophisticated techniques and having to learn entirely new methodologies. And the, some teams are investing in this a lot more than others, and they're probably going to generate. And advantage with it. Listen, John, we are out of time with you. We want to wish you the best with your book. That book is called Mind and Matter. It's out right now. Mind and Matter, A Life in Math and Football. That's from John Urschel, former offensive lineman for the Baltimore Ravens and current math PhD candidate at MIT. John, thank you for being with us. Wish you the best of work. Best of luck with both your work there at MIT and with the book. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Great fun. John Urschel, he is uh, in his last year doing the Ph.D. up there, expects to graduate with a math Ph.D. from MIT, no less. He was a standout with the Penn State Nittany Lions. He played three years as a starting offensive lineman, interior lineman with the Baltimore Ravens before jumping over to pursue his interests in math. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Warden Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Some combination of the faculty hosts are here this morning. That combination is the, what is this? Is it a superset? It's <laughs> the right math term. All four of us are here. The maximum. The maximum. Well, that's less interesting, but sure. <laughs> Audie Weiner. Shane, Helping out with Shane, the vocabulary. Jensen, Eric Bradlin. This is Cade Massey. You guys can join the conversation. one 844 Wharton 1-844-942-7866. Email us, businessradio at or hit us up on Twitter at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall is the handle. Great way to reach out. If you have a question, suggestion, over, under for our final segment. Before we roll into the next segment, guys, we're just off the phone with John Urschel, former offensive lineman for the Ravens, author of a brand new book, Mind and Matter, Life and Math and Football. Of course, this you know jumps out because here's an NFL athlete who's now doing a math PhD at one of the top programs in the world. Reactions to the conversation? So had, had anything that you learned from that or anything that you left wondering about from that conversation? Uh, it, actually, actually, we never had a chance to ask them, but how did he end up in football in the first place? Mm-hmm. I mean, with someone... He's a big boy. He's a big guy, yes, but mm-hmm. it's it's a dangerous sport. I mean, uh, and it has absolute ramifications on your ability mm-hmm. to think, mm-hmm. at least on average. Mm-hmm. And it seems that, that he would have been steered away from it. Well, he's, he did pull the plug at an unusual time yep. in his career. He's a starting lineman in the NFL after three years, and he says, okay, I'm going to go do math. Well, yeah. I, th- I think one thing that we kind of brought up uh, during the break is, is is the extent to which 
uh, different positions. I, I mean, you know, I, I, he's got kind of an interesting vantage point to kind of evaluate, like, the extent to which mistakes, when they happen on the field, are they mental versus physical? And I think that and how that varies by position would be would have been a really interesting kind of we could talk mm-hmm. to another half hour about that yeah. i also think you know um you know one argument would have been well if he knew he was that good at math obviously he had to be good at math as a child if he was that good at math you know a lot of times people choose things to do that help promote their future career it'd be hard for someone to argue the nfl would help your career as a PhD mathematician. But maybe he's just like all the rest of the... I'm a parent of a 22 and a 19-year-old. Maybe he's just like every other 19 and 22-year-old said, cool, I get to play in the NFL. For sure. And then he said, you know... Then after at some point he said, well this isn't going to go on forever. Let me move on to another career. So maybe he's just yeah, a mm-hmm. human like the rest of us. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he, it, it, it just, he, he, he's, he has the good fortune and the hard work to like be incredibly, to excel in two different vocations that are usually not particularly Correlated. strongly yep. associated with yep. each other. So we've got another example of that coming up in the next half hour. We have a former player who's involved heavily with sports analytics now, as well as the general manager of the organization he works for. Great opportunity, I think, to talk to a couple of folks from Trackman. So John Olshan is the general manager of Trackman. Trackman, as many people know, but maybe not everyone listening, it's a technology used by all 30 Major League Baseball teams. It's why we know things like exit velocity and spin rate and those kinds of things we've been playing with for the last few years. John's joining us as GM, but also Zach Day is joining us. Zach is a former Major League pitcher. These guys, I've always been curious how they feel. These pitchers feel about getting analyze quite so precisely we can ask Zach. Zach is now manager of insights and player development at the company. John, Zach, welcome to the show. Thank you. Delighted to delighted to have you. Where are you guys calling in from this morning? I am calling from Sapporo, Japan. Well, that's not and not just, far. <laughs> no, and I, and I, and twelve I hour time difference. From, I think. Busan, yeah. Korea. So, so, so yeah, the, the gospel is spreading. Who is in so. Sapporo and, and and who is in Tucson? Uh, uh, well, Tucson. I was yeah. meeting with the uh, Latte Giants minor league team, and uh, tomorrow I'm meeting with the Fighters, and then traveling from there to meet with the uh, the Eagles, and I'm um, just making the rounds here in Japan. Got it. Wow. All right. I'm, I'm not. My my location is not quite as exciting. Although I have spent quite a few times with John in Japan and Korea, but I'm I'm in Cincinnati. So. Oh, Cincinnati. Yeah. Zach, what are you doing in Cincinnati? I'm born and raised, so I make my home here. And, uh, uh, I raised the kids and you know, two boys, so uh, kind of put put roots in Cincinnati and kept them. Well, you know, we've got a we've got some friends of the show over there and a company that we talk to a lot. Do you have you met? Have you spent much time with Pro Football Focus? Do you, I, I have not. I have oh, not. They're so, actually the other uh, side yeah. of things in some yeah, way. Yeah, you got to go. Yeah. You got to get over there. I'm, I'm sure they'd I love know. to talk to you. Yeah, definitely. I'll have to, I'll have to make that connection for sure. That'd we, be great. we can get you. We can get you set up. Football meets baseball, man. Worlds colliding. We can. We can help nice. with that. I love that. We'll, we'll make that happen. So let's let's first, just in case folks, some folks don't know what you guys do. I mean, you run through the list of things you guys are tracking. So. John, can you tell us a little bit about the the information that's gathered by the TrackMan technology, and then we'll go from there to how organizations are using it. Sure. So TrackMan, it locks on the ball at the moment the pitcher it leaves the pitcher's hands. And so at release, it gets a 3D release slot. So it's height, side, and extensions, the distance the pitcher lets go of the ball from the rubber towards home plate. 
then it gets the uh, the angles out of the hand, so vertical and horizontal angles out of the hand, and directly measures the spin rate. Um, and then while the ball is in flight, we measure the the uh, vertical break and the horizontal break. And then at the plate, we measure the uh, the approach angles, horizontal vertical approach angles, the uh, location of the ball at the front edge of the plate, and um, then if the ball is hit, we provide all the same information on the ball off the bat. Mm-hmm. So the vertical horizontal launch angles, the exit speeds, the uh, you know the trajectory of the ball. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it measures basically uh, you know, all the properties of the ball in flight. Underneath it, 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 there's a lot of information that that you know about the about the. Uh, the, the lift and drag of the ball and things like that that we you know, we're not going to get into too much here, but it's uh, it, it, it's a pretty sophisticated system that mm-hmm. is uh, it, it made its made its broke its ground in golf, and uh, so now now we made our mark. In I, I guess I, I didn't know that. So you're so I, I do. In fact, I was just thinking about this in our show last week about the first place we really saw these kinds of details was i don't know 20 years ago probably when they started wiring people or not even wiring people up they just you know watching the ball off of a tee at a driving range in chicago or whatever you're i didn't know that was the same technology that's it went from there to baseball john is, is it uh is it radar technology i mean what's the underlying physical mechanism to track the ball and how does it distinguish the ball from everything else that's going on in the field <laughs> so so it's a it, it's a phased array 3d doppler radar system is the core of it. Now of we, course. we're also introducing a new system, which is uh, uh, optically enhanced radar. So it uses both vision tracking and and the radar uh, to get a more precise position in the, of the ball and its, and its trajectory. Um, so, John, this is Eric Bradley. Does so, that mean there are sensors or stuff all around the stadium? So there's a physical part that you guys install stuff so that it can shoot the Doppler at the ball, or at some pace you're going to have some yeah, sort of. The, 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 the beauty of it is that it's completely untethered, so it it, it it has no impact on on the you know what's going on on the field. It's it's just passively collecting data. Mm-hmm. So there's one radar, and it's up typically around the high home camera, uh, or if you're going to use the portable one, that'd be maybe ten feet behind, you know, fifteen feet behind home plate. Uh, but yeah, so that one radar captures everything. That's absurd. I had no idea it was yeah, there. There's only that, one. It, you know, it's up. You can see it. It's a big sort of black kind of square. Is that? Am I describing the right thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a very nondescript. Sometimes we, we uh, you know, we, we cover it so that you know, it blends in with the facade. Uh, as we were, as right. we were getting going, we, we were really came into this as a strategic asset through the clubs. And the, the, the more it receded into the background and nobody knew it was there, the better. The better. Right. So right. I, I have a question about, so this has been around for some time, and we know even from the beginning of our show, it really changed a lot of the ways that people approach baseball, but it's it's really increased in accuracy over the years. So can you tell us about how accurate is it now and how accurate was it when it first came out? And, and what particular measurement might right. you be most interested there? So for it? example, the, the, the actual pitch locations, um, uh, the velocity out of the, out, of the, out of the bat, the spin rates, and then of course there's the distance, the angles, all those things but, from hitting but, as well. But real quickly, one of the things we didn't mentioned but obviously by measuring all these things you can tell whether this thing's a ball or a strike like very precisely presumably right well i don't think they know where the, the strike zone is that's not trackman right no i mean we with, with the radars mapped to the field we have it you know where the uh where, where the strike zone is the the vertical walls of it the the horizontal is you know varies by player but 
for you know when when you know the stuff we do with Major League Baseball, they have a pretty sophisticated system that they use to you know to layer the strike zone in based individualized for each player. Okay. Um, and you asked the question before: How does it know what the rate, what the ball is? So it, you know, it it's looking for the ball in an area of interest around the pitchers around the mound, and when it sees something, it knows that we you know knows the shape of the ball. And, and when it and the size of it, and when it, when it, that appears heading towards the radar above, say you know, fifty miles an hour or forty miles an hour, that's when it that's when it locks on and throws out everything else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Zach, can we hear a little bit from you on the player side of this, especially as the technology arrived in the league and then has slowly become adopted and has gotten better, and now teams pay more attention. And heck, these days they're even using this kind of information to develop and change players. What has been? What would you say about how players have, have have experienced this technology over the time that you've been been using it? Yeah. So uh, when John approached me in two thousand and eight, uh, it's hard to believe. Um, it was mm-hmm. a week after I had retired, and he brought this system out and set it up in a high school in Cincinnati uh, on a tripod. So that's kind of how I got intru- introduced to it, and saw spin, and I had a high school pitcher throw on it. And, uh, you know, it pulled me in. So, you know, I, I was looking for a transition off the baseball career into something in, in the business side. And, um, you know, it, it really intrigued me on what it was able, what it was able to do. But I had, you know, even, even had played through 2008, it was just starting to get, you know, a little bit introduced, but it was all video, video based. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, you know, ironically, one of my roommates in Kansas City and AAA was Brian Bannister. So, you know, we we uh, we kind of you know, we bounced. It, it, we didn't really talk too much about that. Even then, it was just it kind of fell fell in there. But that now, I think you're like, yeah, this is great. But when when you introduced it, or even myself, I didn't know what you know, we had an idea what spin meant meant made the ball ball move. But there's a lot more to it. What did that mean in the game? So uh, I think getting the game data was a big step for us, and, and uh, we thought it would be a practice system initially, but. You know, we didn't really know exactly what that meant from a teaching standpoint, and it's come full circle. And now they're using it in player development, and uh, kind of we know there's a lot more insights and understanding how to to change things for the better, um, to improve on your strengths, and uh, and really kind of take take the game from you know there's a little small small things that you can do, and you, the data can point you in the right direction. Well, so can you tell us about that change. as a pitcher? How do people respond, and especially early? It feels now that people want this stuff, but like whenever whenever John comes out and sets this tripod up and has a high school pitcher throw on it, and you're getting all these readings, you've just ended your major league baseball career. You've been pitching your entire life. Did you yeah. want to get on the? Did you want to go to the mound, right? I assume, and you want to say, well, what <laughs> what can it tell me about mine, and how is it different on a fastball versus a, a breaking pitch? And, and I mean, did you was that the reaction? Or how how, as a player, how did you react when you first came across this technology? I didn't know what it was, you know. But as a player, it was it was. Did I want to get on the mound? At that time, I was coming off of uh, two shoulder surgeries, and I was uh, like, "All right." What mentally, I was, you know, as you go through your career, and, and when I made that bro- break, as far as there were times, probably it wasn't right then, but there were times as we were going through this process that, that popped in my head, like. And this thing could really help me. Yeah. But mentally, I was I was done. Mm-hmm. Kind of, uh, it was on for the. You talked a little bit, and probably in the earlier saying, but it was you know the time's right, and uh, I knew that time was right. And I mm-hmm. never really looked back. So, you know, that was it. The was, explosion it was time for me to and understanding the data else. happened 
in at Arizona Fall League, Zach. Remember that? It's like we it was 2010, and we were yeah. we, we would track all day, and then we, we had our analyst, this guy uh, Josh Ornstein, who's with NBA now. We would go back to a house we rented in Arizona and stay up all night, just hypothesizing what the data means, and then go out to the field and talk to it people. And we had a lot of data with us, so the, you know Josh and Zach would just stay up all night, and you know we left there with all sorts of great nuggets, like with yeah. starting to get a general understanding of span well, extension. Well, yeah, yeah, give give us an example of what you're talking about. You're saying about not trying to make sense of the data, so. What's an example yeah. of an insight or a hypothesis that you that you came up with at night in the house and then went back out to the field and talked with somebody about it or brand new numbers? So we would start talking about players in a way we we would one of the things we came up is I Josh or I have never seen these kids play right never seen these pitchers play and we could tell them more about their pitchers sometimes than, than the coaches themselves. I see, and that see. kind of blew them away a little bit. Um, you know, from the type of pitcher, their strengths, their weaknesses, we could look at their spin, their, their spin direction, and tell them what type of pitcher, what swing and miss percentage, kind of what how what we what we expected out of their outcome. Wow! And um, and, and and how they potentially could, you know, why why they are good, why a pitcher throwing ninety two is successful, and why a pitcher throwing ninety two is not successful. Right. So those are insights because. Really, velocity was the only thing that you know was one of the only things that they were going off of, right? Right. So it was a big, big. Diff- we could tell more into it, and, and I think velocity was king. But you know, there was ninety guys that threw ninety-five miles an hour, ninety-six that were getting hit, and we could explain why. And, so, and that was providing the why. Um, the guy, you know, the player from a. Um, you don't want to be average in a lot of our measurements because that's what the the, the, the batter sees I see. um, and that's what they're expecting so movement release a lot of these things um, spin you know, just different different measurements okay that, so real quick but make sure I understand yeah. two guys both throw 95 one guy yeah. is average on six other pitch dimensions spin yeah. rate tilt yeah. release point and and the other guy is unusual on a couple of those yeah. right? The guy who's unusual is going to be hit less at the same velocity. Yeah, same velocity. Wow, that's really helpful. Okay, yeah, it's so, like one yeah, of the one of the like, great one of our got... first sort of riddles we came up with is when is an eighty-eight mile an hour fastball faster than a ninety mile an hour fastball? Yeah. Good, mm-hmm. and, and that's when the release is much longer, tendon. right? Yeah, what's that? It's when the release is much closer. Is that the answer, or is there something else? Yeah, no, that's it. That's it. And we, but no one had measured measured that before, and so suddenly people talk about a sneaky fastball, and now we know what it is. Wow! <laughs> and why, why, why is he so much more effective? Because it's deceptive. You know, it's eighty-eight, but man, it plays a lot faster. So, Zach, I want to ask a question to Zach. Zach, this is Eric Bradlow. Um, it mentions in your job yeah. title that you're a manager of insights and player development. So, could you talk? Maybe both of you could talk, but maybe Zach, you could start with. Um, are do you guys consider yourself a data company, an insights company, and how do you balance the two? a good question um you know we have to we have to we have to know our data to talk to it so we have to kind of understand it and and for the new customers coming in and be able to explain why you should get a system Uh, we also help have to help the current customers if they do have questions we have to have some knowledge of it um there are teams that have taken it and and ran with it um you know we we don't uh 
publicize a lot of early on um, that the MLB teams did their own work and they, they were able to get an advantage, and, and which was fantastic. But, you know, we still have to have some knowledge of what that information is. That's kind of what it is. But it's does general, TrackMan, do you knowledge. guys have data scientists working for you that are coming up with inference from the data? Or are you purely, I don't say purely, but are you guys mainly a supplier of data or collector of data, which and you, then you distribute it? Or do you so, guys build so, predictive models at all with what you guys are seeing? So, so it, it, it's evolved over time. When we first brought this out, nobody had ever seen it before, and they wanted to know why, you know, why did they need a missile tracking system on the baseball field? So in the beginning, we were an insights company because we had to show that there was, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. But then once the teams got it, they didn't really want us to do a lot of research into it because that levels the playing field. Then it, then it was, you know, we were a technology company, data company. We, you know, we, we, the data is the, we sell rubbers and they make the tires and, it's, and whoever makes the best tire wins. So, you know, we, we haven't focused on, on analysis, but now that we're getting into you know back to our roots, which is the player development, right? It, there's there's a lot of research going on, and the, you know one thing that that I think is, is unique is what, I think one of our secrets was pairing Zach with an analyst, so pairing Zach with Zach with a statistician, mm-hmm. and so it's one thing to look at the data and you know let the numbers tell the story, but if you're coming at it from a perspective of someone who's actually done it at a very high level, you think about it differently. Right. And he thinks about it differently than anyone we work with. Right. We're talking to John Olshan, general manager of TrackMan, as well as Zach Day. Zach is a former major league pitcher, also with TrackMan. Zach is manager of insights and player development. The TrackMan technology, of course, is how they track the ball in major league parks these days and why we know things like spin rates off of pitchers as well as exit velocities off of hitters. Zach, uh, it sounds like you were very content with when you walked away from the game and how you did it, but if this sort of technology and data had existed you know, back during your career, how do you think it would have changed your career? Would it, would it have extended your career or would it have taken it in a different direction? I, th- I, I do believe it would have. You know, I look back on it, I, the, ironically, I can look back at the and, and understand. I've looked at the data enough. I know what, without having my data, I know what my data would have been. Wow, wow. So, um, you know, it's like I know I was a high release. I would have had a high release. I would have had low spin. My velocity witness. I would have had a lot of uh, a lot of uh, more horizontal movement and and just low spin. I know my ball was was, and that's how yeah, that's how you create it. But I also know from an injury perspective. Um, you know, if there's some insights into release slot change and over time and just doing things that can give kind of um, a little bit of a heads up, hey, something different's going on here. And then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you're making some changes. And, and when you were going good and your arm was feeling good, you know, I do feel like my arm slot, you know, increased and my release point changed over time. And whether that led to something, I don't know. But uh, hypothetically, I could have, you know, at least quickly made that adjustment and gone backwards. It's interesting. I do believe it would, have, it would have helped on my other pitches as well. And just being able to adapt, right? So I was a sinker ball guy. I threw it a lot. Being able to create other pitches off that pitch design, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. um, just to be able to prolong the career. I see you've seen it. You start to see it a little bit more now. Mm-hmm. Um, but guys have the advantage of being able to know what works and being able to build towards that. And that's uh, that's something that's um, really, you know, the insight is, is there. It's just, you know, a lot of times when we were playing, and back I say back then, but it doesn't seem that long ago, but it was, 
uh, we were guessing. Yeah. We were hypothesizing right. that, hey, I think this will work. Uh, we don't do that anymore. We'd say, no, this is where you got to get to with your movement and your spin and different things. So you're talking about so many different dimensions of the ball's flight, but also dimensions of what the pitcher does. What yeah. of, what of these dimensions is more malleable? What what do they find easier to change, and what is harder to change? So uh, I would say, you know, from a grip standpoint, we, we're probably we're looking closer at the grip more than ever, and you're starting to see these high, uh, more high speed cameras used because of this. It's right. the cause and effect, right? So, you know, you have the grip is probably the easiest of, of things to change and start to manipulate. And that's the first thing we would go to, you know, I yep. would go to yep. and was the grip. So that, that I would say that's the first thing that, that, that has changed. So guys, what about on the hard side? So what's something that you know would make a difference if they could change it, but people have a hard time changing. So release is a hard one. Slot uh, maybe release. What's release height. Release height, side, and, and getting a little bit more extension. Okay. Then you're talking about changing mechanics. Anything, anytime you start to kind of change mechanics, right. let's say go from a, and I talk in feet um, because that's what we provide the data in, but let's say go from a, a six foot two release height, which is kind of the average, to a five foot five release height, just to try and make that ball, you know, move differently wow. and react differently at the okay. plate. Okay. Dropping six inches in release height. You know, I I know it will be a positive thing, but even dropping two or three seems like it's dropping 15, 12. Right. It's very hard for a pitcher so to make just, that change and still maintain yeah. some sense of control. I mean, this is what a pitcher's worked their whole lives to get, and I imagine a small change like that could make it very difficult. Um, my, well, I have a whole lot of questions for you, but one of the things that really interests me is is the availability of some of this data. So you put this in, in parks all over. It's owned by the team who owns the park. Um, the MLB owns it, and, and I'm not really sure, so clarify that for me. And secondly, is there a complete set of TrackMan data for any season, anywhere, available to the public? So we have we started off working with the clubs. So we, we work with all 30 clubs in the U.S., and, and they we're, we have radars in every minor league stadium. So, uh, and then there's a, a data sharing program. So the teams, the teams share this data. So there's a, a full set of, of TrackMan data. You know, some teams have it going back to 2010, but really it was probably around 14 that it that it took off. And uh, but the but and then at the major league level, it belongs to Major League Baseball. Um, there, we don't, we can't publish it. We can't write about it. Until recently, we couldn't really talk about it until it just became common, you know, somewhat common knowledge in the industry that we're in, we work with every club. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's not available to the general public, and that was really important to the teams that it, it that not happen because you get this open source um, analytics where you, you, you people are finding things in the data, and once they find it and they publish it, all the teams have it. So. Um, there, there is the only, the only TrackMan data that's available would be actual StatCast data, and that's what, what MLB would choose to release. And that's just some subset that they just pick, because I know that you can get exit velocity, you can get a lot of things, but a lot, many things, including crucial things, are missing. This is just yeah. their decision. They decide what they want and what they don't want. Do they have a, an agreement with the teams at what to share and what not to share? You know, I, I I don't know if it's anything that formal. I think that it, it, it is they they have a um, an appreciation and and uh, an understanding of what 
what what's important to the teams and so they you know, they 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 want they fit within that with that within that ecosystem they, it's um so they're not you know they they with the pitch fx maybe a lot got published early and 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 uh, but when the when the transition to TrackMan happened, that's when they started holding back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Guys, we're down to just the last few minutes. I'm curious to hear what you think is coming next, and maybe we start with Zach. As from the player perspective, what are they asking for that you guys either are just coming into or might add to your repertoire right now? What do you think is most interesting to them in 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 terms of what comes next? And then John will come back and ask as, as an organization where you guys are pushing. So. I would say, you know, from a hitting and pitching perspective, it's we're, we're looking at really kind of fine-tuning and, and mirroring and, and merging the data with information with video so you get a visual. I think mm. that that's coming. Um, that helps kind of speed up the learning process. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're also kind of looking at, I'd say, more insights, um, like tunneling. They're getting more information on tunneling and just what is tunneling? how important that is. So I think that's coming, and in pitch design, it's just kind of coming out. So that's that's kind of scratching the surface, but that's going to be talked about more. So, Zach, we, we've been hearing some about pitch design. I've not heard this phrase, tunneling. What is tunneling? So pitch design is kind of, and tunneling kind of go hand-to-hand. So tunneling kind of, uh, tunneling is how close your pitches, let's say, stay in a tunnel, a certain tunnel for a certain distance of time, right? So before they start to really kind of disperse, um, whether that's the breaking ball, if it if it comes out your hand higher, or it kind of, or the changeup, if its movement is coming from a different angle, the, the hitters can pick up. They don't know exactly what's going on; they just know something different going on there. So Zach, so, you're saying ideal is a pitcher has a tunnel they throw all of their pitches through for the longest period of time possible, and then it does yeah. something different later. Got it. Exactly. Wow. Yep. Yeah. And, so, so we're looking at that. I think a little bit closer. I think, and then you're starting to look at you know pitch design as far as that goes. There's other things that I think location. Um, I think you're going to start to see matchups. Um, you got heat maps and matchups just take a whole new level of, um, and then and they probably are at the MLB level, but they're taking just a whole new look, and because of all the data and. And that, I think that you're starting to see that at the MLB level, just the matchups of pitcher versus batter, not necessarily always being lefty versus lefty, but it's other data. Mm-hmm. There might be a hitter that face struggles facing guys with high spin or high oh. high induced vertical break. Sort of tailoring uh, the, the approach of a pitcher yeah. to a batter. Oh, my God. Yeah, let's, yeah so. we'll need to unpack that one in a little bit more detail. That's really, really <laughs> yeah. interesting. Listen, yeah. what about at the organizational level? John, you're traveling the world right now. What What is important to the organization? What is what is the next challenge, next opportunity for TrekMan? So I guess the, the, the big one right now is we've got a, net, a network, a global network of radars that just invent every professional baseball stadium in the world. And um, when we were putting this in, there's no instruction manual for how to install a 3D radar system in a baseball stadium. And, and so the technology has evolved. It's gotten better. We've gotten smarter about how we install it. But we made a big leap forward when we introduced the optically enhanced radar in the uh, in the big league stadiums at the start of 2018. So uh, uh, an important one for us right now is we're, we're going to what we call the V3, which is taking that optically enhanced radar and bringing it to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So going beyond the 30 stadiums. Um, and that will it significantly increases the accuracy and the consistency of the data from mm-hmm. stadium to stadium. So that's, mm-hmm. that's important. 
And then the, another one is we've taken that same technology and we put it into a portable radar. So mm. the vision is you can you know, work on it in the bullpen. You're, you have the, the same measuring system you're tracking bullpen sessions with, batting practice. You're getting the game data. We also provide data from uh, you know, over 60 colleges and uh, you, know, you know tens of thousands of amateur players a year. And so it's this one consistent data set. So the bringing you know, the, the the portable radar is now an important part to that, and it's really going to open up the player development. As we've built this, it was really for the numbers guys, but now that it's it's accepted, the players want it. They want to use it. Right. So this portable radar and having the 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 one to one of what you're getting in the game and whether you're in a pro team or right. you're in college or you're, it, it, it's having that so you can get the real-time feedback to work, to work on the type of stuff Zach's talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and, then, and then tracking the bat. You know, but it, our thing is it's tetherless. And, and so the, you know, if we're going to track the bat, it'll be tetherless. And, and uh, so that, 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 that is, that's really our future. Like right now it's really our, our focus is getting, getting the sandwich, getting the, the practice radar that we, we call it the B1. Um, getting that off the ground and it's it, we, we just launched it and it, it's off to a really good start so far that's great it sounds like fun we'd love to bring, bring it's it going to show up the little league diamonds within a, well, hey, within bring, a few years I bet, to, right bring it to Penn. we'll do a little uh we'll do a little segment we'll see they what Adi, it. Penn, we'll, i think has the we'll rate see what Adi can do Adi, <laughs> our former our former ball player listen john zach that's what time we have we wish we could keep talking to you but we know you got other things to do as well but we really appreciate your taking the time to be with us this morning wish you the best with your work my pleasure. Thank Thanks, you very guys. much. Appreciate your time. Absolutely. That's John Olshan, general manager of TrackMan, and Zach Day. Zach is the manager of insights and player development at TrackMan. They are the company who provides all these fun new data that we pay attention to coming out of MLB and obviously baseball parks around the world. Just off the phone with the TrackMan guys, talking baseball data, baseball analytics to some extent. Good fun. I think it'd be so much fun to get those guys here and or go to some park where you can throw and hit off those things i'd love to yeah uh, you know see what your numbers look like see to, how we can learn to, to be each 18 other. again and do that now at this point. <laughs> no seriously but also even just to kind of play with or watch trying, the, uh, watch the big boys and major leagues do it and just see the data feed coming oh, off for sure 100 yeah. and you then know? to watch them tweak you know this is the thing that's so amazing right now is their ability to get the get the feedback and then do something different and see immediately how yeah. successful they were in implementing that different thing Good fun. Very good fun. We've got one last open segment here to run through a handful of sports that we need to touch on. We, I'm, I'm so out of rhythm with these golf majors. It's weird because it feels like every time we stand up, there's another major coming around. They just play all year round. This is U.S. Open week. And <laughs> I this, know. Of but... course, this is a normal U.S. Open week. It's just that we're not normally just a few weeks after the PGA. Right. Well, yeah. that was the thing. They inserted the PGA in between the Masters and the U.S. Open. And so now there's three majors within – well, the Masters was in late April. So it's basically three majors within six or seven weeks. Yeah. And then the British Open's not that far behind. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. in Portrush, I believe. And so, I mean, that's coming up in maybe three or four weeks after – maybe four or five weeks. So, I mean, all the majors are within a – three-month span. So it's unlike tennis, where you've got, you know, January for the Australian Open, and then you've got, you know, the French Open in June, then you've got Wimbledon in 
July, August, and then you've got the U.S. Open in September. You've got like a nine-month major season. This is a three-month major well, season. Well, let's not let's not rush too quickly to judgment because we have to get used to something new. Yeah, it and, might and actually end up being kind of cool to sort of see, like, because you'll. Uh, but um, but yeah, no, it is kind of it, it is truncated. Maybe they'll maybe they'll try and space them out a well, little me, bit more. Well, let me ask in you the future. A, let me ask you a prediction for tennis, not so much golf. Let's ima- Would you agree with the following that? Let's imagine someone is a specialist on a given surface for tennis, okay? The fact that the the uh, majors are spread out more in tennis, while the data is not there yet, might suggest that it gives someone other than the big three an opportunity because it would allow a specialist to focus on mm-hmm. a given season in sports. Let's imagine in tennis all the tournaments were j- – the majors were jammed up together. You'd say – that that has to favor just I'll call it the flat out better player and gives less re, less opportunity for specialization. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, except I mean I think you know if if somebody was sort of I assume the kind of the financial side of this is lucrative enough in either golf or tennis now that that if you wanted to become a specialist like that you could anyway, right? Regardless of kind of the scheduling, like if clay you just want to focus hardest, on clay, be, clay would be the hardest. You could still have a pretty successful tennis career just on clay. You I could, assume. except there's probably only five or six tournaments and like a five week span where clay is there. You know, right. grass kind of hard courts are mm-hmm. the rest of the season. So the, yeah. the, my first approach on it is is a little different, and it's around momentum. You're one of your favorite topics, Eric, because we do know there's non stationarity and performance in general, and there and it, it is in golf. So one of the things that golf betters pay attention to is who's hot, and they do it in a sophisticated way. But they're paying they're paying attention to recent performance, and we know that it matters. The question would be, how does that decay map onto the tournament schedule? Because my first guess is, look, maybe this gives a greater chance at a Grand Slam, or at least racking up multiple majors because they're more compressed, and you kind of catch this you catch the same. Momentum. There should be more auto correlation in golf. Yeah, the golf. The counter side or the counter argument to momentum is fatigue, though, right? I mean, tennis in tennis much more than golf. Well, exactly. So tennis perhaps is spread out a little bit in part. Because you know that it, it is down. physically that much more exhausting of yeah, a sport. Look, you want to golf. break up the big three from winning every tournament? Put the four majors four weeks in a row, and let <laughs> yeah. me tell you, it may not be <laughs> the knock them out. Th- yeah. this, this makes me wonder whether they're going to really damage the intermediate, the 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 intervening golf tournaments, the ones that are falling between the majors. Mm. I mean, surely they're going to get less attention now than they used to because they're either coming into or going into. Coming out of or going into a major all the time for you're, three you're months. You're probably true, though. I mean, maybe it, it would just increase our overall sort of like like golf would almost have a season the way you know kind of football does or something like that, where we you know maybe you maybe intensely. Uh, we, you, yeah, it could be that it actually kind of hurts. But I don't the know, but they, but they but already the, his, historically a lot of players take the week off yeah. before a major. Yeah, and no, so you just got your. Well, we just had. Uh, I'm speaking to Mr. Canada here. We just had the Canadian Open golf tournament this last week. No, it's not the U.S. Open, but it is the National Open Tournament of Canada. Mm-hmm. Rory McIlroy won, running right. away at the right. end, shot yeah. 61 in the final round, but. All the top players in the world weren't there, and part of it was because the, the U.S. Open right. is starting this yeah. week. Yeah. So let's talk about the Open. It's not, of course, it's a great tournament, but it's also at Pebble Beach, which is one of the most storied of the U.S. golf tournaments. And Tiger has a very famous win out there back in the day, the one he, just, he lapped the field. 15-stroke un- win. Unbelievable. So 
What is the current thinking on how this tournament is going to shape up? Is Kepka's the story everywhere, right? Well, he's certainly the story here because he's the two-time defending U.S. Open champion. Now, the thing is, it's different than, for example, like the Masters, because the Masters is always played the same week on the same course. The U.S. Open is played on different courses, not every year, but like every 10 years or 15 years it might rotate back. He would be the first person since I believe the guy's name was Willie Anderson in like the early 1900s if he won three straight U.S. Opens. Only five or six people have won two straight. And the last being, I believe, Tiger Woods, I think, won two straight. But certainly I remember Curtis Strange won two straight, like 89 and 90, somewhere in that. To win two straight is remarkable, but he would be the first essentially modern golfer to win three straight. So he's definitely the story. What's interesting, of course, is he's not the... Eric, by the way, Willie Anderson? I mean, where did you pull that from? Well, you read articles about yeah, Kepka yeah. going for I, a I three think I, and I saw it's some in there. mention of that, too. It's got to yeah. be right up there. In these no, I'm so saying you I've read, never heard of this guy yeah. before. Well, 1903 to 1905, he wins three U.S. Opens in a row. I've never heard of him. Mean, well, well, I, I didn't saying, know that the U.S. Open went back that far. That's pretty impressive. It's one of the oldest tournaments, then. It is one yeah. of the oldest tournaments. I mean, certainly well, the, it's older than the Masters. It's not older than the British Open. The British Open, I believe, has been played since, I'm going to say, the late 1800s, maybe 1870s, yeah, 1880s. I was going to say 1870s. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, Brooks Kepka is the story. Um Interestingly, he's not the favorite right now. DJ Dustin Johnson is the favorite. He's I guess. the favorite all the time. He just never converts. My well, God. he's got one. Right, he's got one major. Yeah, he's had more. He should have won. That's a nice little stat, by the way. Guys who yeah. are in contention and don't convert, and there's a question of whether that's just chance or whether there's some proclivity. There. Is he the Greg Norman of this generation? Yes. Well, I mean, okay. Right, no, so that's that's I, I realize so that, that that's you know there's there's a lot more history. That's not than a bad that, comparison. But, you know, it's really not a bad. What do you think yeah. about that? DJ Johnson and Greg Norman. Yeah. I mean, they 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 both they're both one of the top players in the game. Physical golfer just seemed to not be able to put it together that Sunday when Look, they needed Greg to. Greg Norman, Nor- he won a lot of majors though. He right? did. How many well, did he, he win? did, but he won a lot less than he was <laughs> he in contention won, for. I think four, five, yeah. not as many as he not as have, many really. as you would think. He won yeah. the British Open a couple times, and I forget which other one he Given won. His kind he never of won the ranking match. and longevity. I think his like majors. Look, his are car- below expectations. Look, his career, okay. his okay. career essentially came down to, unfortunately for him, one round. I don't remember the year. I'm going to whatever ninety six. Let's say it was the year Faldo won the Masters. Greg Norman was up by six shots going into the final round. He shot seventy eight. I think Faldo shot sixty seven, sixty eight. I mean, he yeah. lost by yeah. five or six strokes. If he wins that tournament, his whole the whole there was also the playoff of there was his also, career. Well, didn't he lose in a playoff to Larry Mize one time? So as La- well, so you have good memory. Shane Jensen, Look Larry at that. Jensen, the Canadians. No, but oh, it was. Wow. I used to pay. But uh, it was Greg one Norman of, was a. I was a huge fan of. No, Greg but Norman I mean the, the Larry Mize playoff. You're talking about. I mean. He one chipped of the, in or something. He, yeah, yeah, no, he yeah. didn't chip in. <laughs> oh, no. Larry Mize says a... to this day, if that ball hadn't hit the hole, it was going 40 feet past <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. the hole. Yeah, yeah. It just, the ball hit the hole. Uh, yeah. Let me just say, Shane is wearing a green jacket, so presumably there you he's go. got his go. Earned it. So back to the US Open. Well, let's go again. I'll give you guys the following five golfers. You tell me whether you take these five golfers or the field. Okay? Field! Bingo! <laughs> yeah, I don't think we get in a in a golf tournament five can ever no, accumulate all, more than half the probability. Six or seven is about what you need typically. 
All right. So <laughs> now uh, I want to hear the five regardless. Justin Johnston, Brooks Kepka, Tiger Woods, Rory McIlroy, and uh, Jordan Speed. Jordan Jordan Speed. Speed. There you go. You live golf. golf. Wow. I mean, we change to my left. We're Holy all cow. showing off our golf sh- chops today. <laughs> I want to actually learn to play the game. That's my next. Uh, oh, that's, 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 list. that's way harder, dude. <laughs> right, but I will, add, I will add two more golfers you guys have heard about. If you want to go to seven, Ricky yeah. Fowler and John Rahm. So those are the seven. You take the field, and I'll take the seven. How about sure, that? Sure. All right, we'll I do it. I don't need to know. I'm I, you, okay. I'm, I'm going to take those seven. I'm going to take the seven also. I think seven is the cutoff point, and it's a good bet. It's fun. I'm going to take nah. those seven. All right. So it's, I don't know. We'll sit, play this as an over under a little yeah, early. Okay. Adi and I are taking those seven. This you is in the U.S. Open. Yeah, that, this week. So uh, Kate is taking the over. Let's call it. Which one are you taking? We're taking DJ, Rory, Brooks, Tiger, Spieth, Fowler, and Rom. That's who Adi and I have. You have you can have the field or those seven. I'm going to take the field. I'm going to take the field. All right. So we're going to split the room. Split the yeah. room. All right. Over there. And Absolutely. I'm amazed that I could name at least, you know, most of those. I, I no. Don't, no. Congratulations. Wow. wow. Is Spieth, we're people, not talking baseball. Do wow. people think Spieth? Where is Spieth in the odds chart? He is, um, I, well, in the odds tracker I looked at just recently, he was 24 to 1. Ooh. Which is n- n- top 10, like 10th yes. best or something? Uh, no, it was 7th best. 7th best? Okay. So, I mean, the thing is, he's been playing much better lately much much better and so i'm actually surprised are you telling me i mean this is i would like to calibrate in the following way would anybody here believe that let's say dustin johnson has three times the chance of winning as jordan speed no no i don't not, either not no i think it's no but i'm sure but even him. brooks captors brooks have to have a two and a half times the odds of winning if i could unlikely no we, yeah, we had this exact conversation with the masters a month ago no i do that's exactly. why i'm bringing it up again I love it. these I relative love it. odds the implied yeah. the implied relative odds are just don't feel right to me at all yeah, yeah because no. i think it's just flatter there even on the right tail it's mm-hmm. flatter you mm-hmm. also asked what's the overall talk going on about the u.s open is that this is not going to be your normal Pebble Beach tournament in the following sense. Apparently, they've made the rough extraordinarily penalizing at this tournament. Matter Uh of fact, a number of pros that have already played it, you know, in warm-up rounds, have said that this is an unfair U.S. Open. What does that mean? Explain. Well, I'll tell you. So, what most pros would like, even for the U.S. Open, which is known to have heavy rough, I mean, that's what the U.S. Open is known. That's its name. That's its name. Is that you go into the rough here, you essentially have no chance to make it to the green. Like, you could be 160 yards away in the rough, and, you know, hopefully maybe you could muscle one onto the green. I think what they're saying is the rough is so severe. It's like a stroke penalty. It's a stroke penalty every time you go into the rough. And I think the pros would like the opportunity to at least try to go for a high-risk shot, but they're going to be punching the ball out of the rough. There's essentially no chance to go. Because you can't get a clean shot. The grass is too heavy. It's not just the cleanliness of shot. Maybe Brooks Kepka, who looks like Popeye, could do it, but you don't have enough physical power in your body because when the when your club hits that heavier rough, it stops the club. Mm-hmm. So you can't generate enough club head speed to hit the ball 150, is, 160 yards. Is out it of weird it. that Pebble would set their course up that way? It doesn't feel like the kind of course that you'd expect that heavier rough on. Well, I think the issue becomes also when you add that to. I don't know if you guys have ever watched one of the Pebble Beach tournaments. The wind could be 30 miles yeah. an hour coming off the ocean they basically in your are t- face. They're turning it into a British Open, basically, right? Well, the, but the British... No, no. The, the difference between the British... The like thing that's St. Andrews is, is the most open right. thing you've ever played. Oh, Correct. I get British I just, Opens just tend to be open. Of, just don't go into a bunker. Of, yeah, you go in... Wait, speaking more in terms so of let weather. me just revisit 
the over-under. This would predict that there's much more uncertainty yes, yes. in the results. Yes, you, you want to change your bets now? Wow. Come, come to the, I, I come, don't think that's fair, uh, but I do think I <laughs> wish I knew more. Well, no, what I think you well, no, what I think you wish is that maybe is that you wish you knew more about, and this was actually, I forget the name of the golf expert that was on a couple of weeks ago, that maybe you wish you knew the driving accuracy rankings of the players and the players that are likely more to win. Accurate. Yeah. That and, are more accurate. And are the ones more accurate in the list that you talked about? Are they the most accurate drivers? Well, I'll tell you somebody, if you want to eliminate somebody from that, you'd have to say Tiger Woods is overrated right now, if that is he's the not setup. A strong, he's not, he's a, not, he's a, not a great I mean, driver. He's, he, not in the last five years. That's been his Achilles heel quote, is his ability to get the ball off the tee. Yeah. He's, just, he's not a great driver of the golf ball. He's the best iron player. Is it player. a particularly long course? This, this is no. a, a good question. It's not known as a long no. course. So, so he could he could put, play a keep lot of driver in the fact, bag a lot there was more. A, well... So you, you were just the pretending the article I was going to talk about. A recent article just came out in Sports Illustrated in the last week that said there may be – you might be able to play a driverless U.S. Open. Yeah. Okay. So we are down to just a few minutes. Let's take the corner and head into the home stretch. It's Wharton Moneyball's Over Under. Eric B., you want to drive us home on this, please? All right. Well, let's start with, let's start with golf since we've been talking about golf. Um, 10.5 Tiger Woods finish this week. So does he make it? If you go under, you think he's in a top 10. If you think over, he's not a top 10 finish. Did we ever get an explanation for what happened at the PGA? He didn't make the cut, right? He did not. He did not make the cut at the PGA. So I, he came out of the Masters. Everyone's thrilled about things. And then he doesn't make the cut at the next one how are we supposed to extrapolate into the US he Open had now? he had yeah. terrible putting at the PGA his okay. his there was in fact again they break it down again strokes gained off the tee strokes gained on iron play strokes gained on wedge play I don't know putting. what to make of it I don't know he what to had make of it. just terrible terrible who, who putting with this one well I'll, I normally start with you always to my left Adi yeah. I normally start with you so let's go with you Adi top 10 finish or not so under you mean top 10 over not top 10 uh I'm going to take your your advice, your information about the driving of the tee and the uncertainty in the rough, and go over. Okay, I'm also going to take over. I am too. My my, I want I want my my heart because he's got oh, this pebble history. I'll be happy to lose this particular bet if he actually does yeah, do top right. ten. Yeah, right. Kind of hedged in a way, but um, yeah, I'm going to go over also. Okay, I'm going to go under. Uh, because I saw him play at the uh, the last play the last tournament, the Memorial, the one the ja- the tournament that um, Arnold Palmer. No, that's no, 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 no. This was the Nicholas tournament, oh. and I thought I had never the first fifteen holes of that final round. I had never seen him play better. Matter of fact, it was the best I think I've seen Tiger Woods play in ten years. So I think he's dialed in. Thanks for that information. I think he's not going to well, play. That, has that been since the PGA? That was since the PGA. Uh, he missed the cut yeah. at the PGA. Played two weeks later and didn't play last week at the Canadian Open. Right, and he right. played. He looked dialed in. He looked. So I'm. I'm going under. All right, let's go to Game 7 of our Stanley Cup Finals. Um, point five, we'll start with Shane. Point five, Bruins Championship. So, so do the Bruins hoist the cup tonight or not? I think they do. I'm not particularly pleased so about it. So that means you're going the, the Bruins, over, over. I'm taking the over. I think the Bruins will win tonight. Yeah, it's hard for me to look at that goal differential and not feel like the yeah, right and home. Boston. home Even ice if you're not is super, something. super confident yep. about it, that's, that yep. seems like you got to go that way. By the way... The Chara 
Char, 42 years old. This is like the most Game 7s anybody in the history of the NHL has ever played. And he's, yeah. been, he's doing it with a broken jaw as well. That guy's ridiculous. He is Wait, ridiculous. are you saying he's played 42 Game 7s? No, no, he's no, 42 no, he's, years old. Oh, and he's 42s. played more Game 7s oh, oh, oh. than anybody in the yeah, history yeah, of the NHL. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's wow. impressive. All right, I'm going First with St. Louis. So we've got Boston, Boston. I'm going with St. Louis tonight. I'm going to go with Boston. I mean, a minus 170. I mean, you're looking at a 60% or so odds. How can I take a mm-hmm. take the other side? Mm-hmm. All right. Let's continue on to another. <laughs> Base well, mm-hmm. let's go to another topic we've talked about a lot today, the NBA. 1.5 more games in the NBA Finals. So I'll start with Cade Massey. So obviously, if you think Toronto's going to win tomorrow night, you take under. If you think the Warriors are going to win, you take over. It's very simple. Who wins game six? Therefore, your prediction. Uh, it's tough. I've, I, I, I'm, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's pretty clear the Raptors are the favorite to win the series. Whether they're going to bounce, do it right away. Yeah, I'll take them. I'll take them. Let's, I'll take them on the road. So you're going to take under. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go under as well. Over. Why odd? Because the Warriors are the favorite tonight. Uh, no. So that's all. Tomorrow it's, night. Tomorrow, tomorrow night. night. It's, you're just uh, predicting a one-game result. So. And Shane? Uh, yeah, that yeah, is right. I'm, I'm it go- is a very simple prediction. I'm, I'm going to take the over. I think the Warriors that's, do. That's the practice. home. Eric has gone against the Patriots every, every time. time. It's like all every heart time. today. All heart. Yep. Maybe one last one. Uh, we obviously have the Women's World Cup. We didn't speak that much about their 13 to nothing victory, yeah. which, you know, one could question the sportsmanship of winning. Kind of score in a professional, not, not professional, I mean, world championship. At some point, you should stop scoring, but um, <clears throat> do the women win the World Cup or not? So, 0.5 World Cup wins, meaning do they win the World Cup? So, I'll start myself. I think the women's team. I'm going base rates. I will go with the women's team. The U.S. women's are, are team. They the, no, they can't they, be the they're base the rate. favorite. No, they are the not, favorite. They are the favorite, but they're not the more than a quarter of the probability. No, 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 they're not more than a quarter. So of the I'm probability. going under. I mean, right, I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm, over. I'm going against them from winning, even though they are the favorite because there's the men. I'm taking the field basically. Yeah, 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 yeah you're yeah, taking yeah, the field. Yeah, yeah. Shane. Sorry, I also will take the field. I am too. This is this. How can you bet it any other way? That's remarkable. Well, I'm trying to max all heart today. No, I'm also trying. I'm looking at the thanks to Zach Drapkin for handing us the standings. I'm going for the maximal differentiation strategy because I'm not in first, and I'm going to no, try. No, no, no. Okay, that's good, so that's that's, good. we've got to. Fix I'm also the taking that rules, strategy, just not, going in the other yeah, direction. Yeah, that I'm going to try change. to maintain, you know, maintain no, the lead. You here, can't so. retrospectively change the scoring rules. We, and remember, <laughs> you're going to give me more credit for the wins I pick against the base rates, then, right? We have, we will sort out the scoring rules long term. <laughs> you know she didn't answer that question. No, this is an analytics show. We should have an answer. An yeah. analytic clearly, answer. And I should get more rest. credit for the wins I pick that are against the odds. You should. You should. It's I, weird how we're better at appraising other people than ourselves. It turns right? out. Guys, another two hours here on Wharton Moneyball. We do this every Wednesday morning. Many thanks. Many thanks to Maddie Dats running the show. Maddie Dats running off to Omaha for a College World Series this weekend. A little taste of Americana. It's good stuff. Got a lot of big-name teams over there playing the, the NCAA Men's Championship. Daniel Bruno, many thanks. Dion Simpkins, we had a Dion sighting mid-show, solving some kind of problem in the studio, helping out. Pull him away from his bonbons this morning. That was great. All right, guys, we'll be back next time. Please join us in. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.